Hope you have your Bible this morning and turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel chapter 6, we come to a very interesting story in the life of David, but it really points back to the life of Saul. Uh, This is a shocking story. If you don't know this story, we're going to get to a verse that will just blow your socks off. In fact, it has a terrible twist that will upset you, uh, but there is in this twist some important lessons for us to learn. In fact, and I don't want to overpromise or be overly dramatic, but I think that this unusual story can be one of the most life-changing stories in the Old Testament. And, and I think whoever you are and wherever you are in your faith journey and whatever age you are, there are important truths, unexpected lessons from this unexpected story. And so let me just begin reading. Second Samuel chapter 6, verse 1. David, again, assembled all the fit young men in Israel, 30,000. He and all of his troops set out to bring the ark of God from Baal, Judah. The ark bears the name, the name of the Lord of armies, who is enthroned between the cherubim. Now, to understand this, first we have to understand what is the ark. Thank you, Mark. What is the ark? I can't do two things at once, so um, not one thing at once sometimes, but maybe this will help. Uh, The ark is not the boat. (laughs) That's the first thing to know. Uh, If you're old enough to know Raiders of the Lost Ark, while that's not where we should get our theology of the ark, that will at least let you know that the ark was a piece of furniture. It was a chest. And it was a chest that was very important to God and very important to the Israelite people. It was important to God and the people for the same reason. It represented the presence of God. Uh, God had given very specific instructions for how the ark was to be constructed. He gave instructions for how the ark was to be transported, how it was to be cared for. And God had met with the people uh, in the presence of the ark on a number of occasions. The ark, precious to God, precious to the people. Now, the other thing to notice here in these first two verses before we go on, when they wanted to move the ark... David is a new king now. Saul has died. One of David's first priorities was to really bring the Lord to the center focus of the nation of Israel. And so a part of this plan was to bring the ark of God to the capital city of Jerusalem. And when he does this, it's only about a 12-mile journey. Uh, It's not through enemy territory. But he still goes and gets 30,000 soldiers to escort the ark. Uh, So that might make you wonder, why so many soldiers? Well, there are a couple of reasons, and they'll become more important as we go through the story. Uh, First, it's it's just a big deal. I want you to see that this wasn't just an ad hoc decision. This wasn't a last minute decision. That they had made great preparation. This was as big a deal as Israel had experienced probably in its history. They were bringing the ark of God, the presence of God, they would have called it, into, uh, into the city. Now, the other issue is the number 30,000. So now, those of you who are really astute with your Bible knowledge may remember 
that in 1 Samuel chapter 4, and we studied this in our sermon a few weeks ago, a few months ago, I think. But in 1 Samuel chapter 4, they mishandled the ark. They took it into battle as a rabbit's foot, so to speak. And what happened in that battle? 30,000 soldiers died. And so now they're seeking any way to handle the ark in the correct way. And I think David, as a way of issuing a national uh, day of repentance, uh, David assembles 30,000 soldiers uh, to go and retrieve the ark. Now, this would have been a parade, a 12-mile-long parade, people lining the path, cheering them on, celebrating as the ark uh, comes back into uh, the, uh, the capital. Look at verse 3. It says, they set the ark of God on a new cart and transported it from Abinadab's house, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the cart and brought it with the ark from uh, ark of God from Abinadab's house on the hill. Ahio walked in front of the ark. And so here they come. Ahio's in the front. He's a priest. Uh, Uzzah's in the back. He's a priest. The, the word Uzzah in Hebrew means mighty or strong. So uh, they probably picked him for a reason. They knew that he could uh, handle any kind of problems. As I said, it's about a 12, 14-mile journey due east to Jerusalem. It was through very rugged terrain, uh, up and down hills, uh, across uh, rocky outcrops on the crests of the hills. Look at verse 5. David and the whole house of Israel were dancing before the Lord with all kinds of fir, wood, instruments, lyres, harps, tambourines, cisterns, and cymbals. And so they had their praise band. And really three things I want you to note. Uh, they had drums, guitars, and a dancer. And I think we had all three last week here in this service. And so we're being biblical, biblical. Now look at verse 6. When they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah reached out to the ark of God and took hold of it because the oxen had stumbled. So the threshing floor would have been a, right at the crest of a hill, a rocky area where they would take wheat and separate the edible part of the wheat from the chaff. Uh, they would do it on a hill because the wind would blow it away as they threshed the wheat. And it would be in a rocky area. So when the cart goes across this rocky area, uh, well, it shifts. And it looks like the ark, the ark of the presence of God is going to fall down might slip off, end up in the dirt or the mud. And so Yuza, uh, the strong man, he reaches out and he steadies the ark. He steadies the ark. Uh, now, why would he do that? I, I want you to just have some appreciation of this. And it's hard because in our culture, we just don't have anything as precious to us as the ark would have been to them. But imagine that... Uh, you have in your family some sort of family Bible uh, that has been passed down and preserved from generation to generation for 200 years, 300 years. And it has in the, in the front pages of this Bible uh, the birth, the wedding, and the death records of everybody in your family. And generation after generation has kept it in pristine condition. And then one day you're headed to Lufkin and you put it on the uh, back of your pickup truck with the tailgate open and it starts to, uh, starts to slide off and um, you're in the back of the truck and so immediately what do you do? 
You do everything you can to keep it from falling onto the road because it's special to you and to your family. It has been for generations. Well, you multiply that times a million, and that would have been the thought pattern in uh, Uses heart as he saw the ark uh, about to tumble onto the ground. Now, verse 7. Let's read it slowly. Then the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah, and God struck him dead on the spot for his irreverence, and he died there next to the ark of God. Wow. The Lord struck this man down. All Yuza was trying to do was to help. He had been given an assignment. He was behind the ark as a strong man for a reason. The ark was about to fall. No one wanted the ark to fall. Precious to God, precious to the people. The ground was dirty and muddy. Yuza simply did what anybody would do, right? And he steadies the ark. God is angry about it. God strikes him down. Why would something like that happen? Well, obviously, there's some more to the story. Uh, First, God had given some very specific instructions about how to uh, transport the ark from one place to the other. Exodus chapter 25. And uh, Uzzah, by the way, would have known this, probably had it memorized. So would the other priest and David and all 30,000 soldiers and everybody on the side, they knew their scripture. The Bible says, God said that they were only to move the ark by using these poles that would go through rings attached to the side of the ark. That's the only way it was ever to be moved. Uh, So interestingly, and uh, this is half true, half joke. I mean, it is true, but my motivation, you know, I I know that I don't have the ark. If you're wondering where it is, it's not in my office. But somebody here in the church, and it's written on the bottom of it. I should have looked before I came out here, but I wasn't going to say this. Uh, But somebody gave me a little model of the ark. I mean, it's a little model, and I love it because you can get a visualization of it. Uh, And it has rings on the side, and it has poles in it. So you're going to think I'm so superstitious. But when I move it from one bookshelf to the other, I move it with the little plastic poles. (laughs) And I'm not joking about that. I know that uh, the Lord's not going to strike me dead for a little plastic thing. But Yuza knew that. They all knew that. It did something different. In fact, in Numbers chapter 4, verse 15, God said, if any man ever touches the ark, he will die. It's pretty plain. Now, that explains it, but it still leaves a lot of uh, unanswered questions. And and we're going to try to answer those, I know. They're important. But look at the last verse that we'll read, verse 8. David was angry because of the Lord's outburst against Yuzah. And so he named that place Outburst Against Yuzah. That's pretty original. As it is known today. So David is shocked at this. Now listen, church. David should have been shocked. But he shouldn't have been shocked at what he was shocked at. There was something way more shocking in verse 7 than Yuza dying. And I'll tell you what that is in a moment. What I want to see if we can do is unravel this event 
and figure out what is the real reason, the primary reason that God struck Uzzah down. Uh, What is the real shocking event in verse 7? What can we learn from this? And then most importantly, where is Jesus in this story? And that's what I'm anxious to get to. But let me go through some unexpected lessons from this unexpected death. Number one, we are dirtier than dirt. Uh, We have to begin by trying to figure out what was going on in Yuza's head. Uh, Yuza knew that the ark represented the holy God and it deserved to be protected from being corrupted, from being polluted in any way. And he wanted to protect the ark from falling on the ground in the dirt, in the mud. And then Yuza makes an assumption. And this assumption, this was his downfall. Yuza assumed that his hand was less dirty than the ground. Yuza was wrong. As it turns out, the ground, the dirt, had never rebelled against the Lord. The dirt had never rejected God's authority. The rocks, the mud, had never worshipped a false god. The rocks, the mud, had never harbored evil or wicked thoughts. The dirt had never been selfish, said hurtful things. The dirt had never lusted And the dirt had never taken what didn't belong to it. The dirt was never going to pollute the ark. The dirtiest thing around the ark was not the dirt. It was Yuza and Ohio and all the other people and David and the soldiers. Because they were sinners. They were guilty of rebelling against God for their entire lives. What the ark needed to be protected from was not the dirt on the ground, but it was the dirt in the heart and in the lives of the people, the people around it. You know, I think this is the biggest confusion that keeps people from fully understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and just running to embrace the gospel. Here it is. God is holy. You know what that means? God is perfect. God is pure. God is without error. God is without compromise. God has has never compromised. God has never considered compromise. God's holiness is constant. It's never been greater because it can never be greater. And it's never been less. It can never be less. God's perfect holiness is cannot tolerate our sin, our evil, our selfish desires. God is holy. We are sinners. It's not just that we have sinned, we have, but we are sinners through and through. That's who we are. We rebel against God. We're selfish. We look out for number one. And the Bible says even the very best in us, the very most noble things about us, those things are wrongly motivated. Those things are selfishly motivated. For our own vainglory, we are sinners. Now, God does not have the capacity to be any less holy than he is, and we do not have the capacity to be any less sinful than we are. So we've got a problem. Our problem is that the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man separates us, eternally separates us. That's why the Bible says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death because God is the source of life and we're separated from God because of our sin, 
because of his holiness. And unless somebody comes along somehow, somebody who has no sin somehow can come along and he can pay for our sin, it's hopeless because we cannot change and because God will not change. You know, the only difference, the only difference between me and you and Yuza, God struck him down. The only difference between me and Yuza is the restraint of God. Uh, we read about it in Romans 3.25. Your Bible might say the divine forbearance of God. I like that. Yuza was not any more sinful than me. And Yuza didn't deserve death any more than me. So what's the difference? It's the patience of God. But one day I will stand before the same God that judged Yuza. Can I tell you the most shocking thing? I told you verse 7, shocking. But it's not shocking for the most obvious reason God killed Yuza. You know the shocking thing about verse 7? That God didn't kill everybody. Yuza deserved to die. He rebelled against God. But so did everybody else. The amazing thing about this story is not that Yuza died, but that anybody lived. The most amazing thing today is not that sometimes God brings his wrath down, but it is that Sometimes God withholds it. And the forbearance, the restraint of God, it ought to cause us, first of all, just to be amazed. It is beyond human comprehension that God could be so holy and still merciful and patient with us. I don't understand it. But I can be amazed by it. And then it ought to cause us to run to Christ. We'll talk about why that's important in a moment. Let me give you the second unexpected lesson. God's word is never trivial. God means what he says. God never speaks needlessly. Uh, when God told the people it can only, the ark can only be moved by the poles, God meant it. When God said you cannot touch the ark, God meant it. When God said if you touch the ark you die, God meant it. So why do you think, use the, and all the other guys, why did they do this? If God so clearly said it, and they knew God said it, why did they do it the way they did it? Do you know? That's an important question. I spent a lot of time this week just asking, why did they do it? If they knew, why did they do it? Well, we can't know for sure. But I'm going to speculate because I've heard people say some of these same things and some of the people I've heard say it are me. So um, I wonder if they said in a little, they had a little meeting before they moved the ark and David and Yuza and Ohio and all the, all the movers and shakers. I wonder if somebody said, well, God said that, but he said it a long time ago. You see, I hear people say that. The Bible says things about 
marriage and homosexuality. The Bible says things about uh, integrity and financial integrity and character. The Bible has a lot to say. And sometimes you'll hear people say, well, that was a long time ago. Well, long time ago, that didn't mean anything to the Lord. Maybe somebody in that little group said, I know that God said to do it one way, but we have come up with a new and a better way. No. I wonder if somebody said times have changed. I wonder if somebody said there's an easier, more pleasing, and more popular way. Listen, I don't know how they justify their actions. I know that I'm pretty good sometimes at justifying sinful actions. But I do know this, they trivialized trivialized God's word. They made God's word secondary to their wisdom, their own perceived wisdom, to their preferences, to their convenience. And we face the same temptation today when it comes to morality or sexuality or pornography or integrity, financial integrity, homosexuality, promiscuity. We can make our perceived wisdom, preferences and convenience more important than the Bible. Often when people are making decisions today, we ask ourselves questions like this. Will I get caught? What will people think? Can I handle the consequences? What do I imagine would make me happiest? What is most convenient? But listen, church, none of those should be a part of our decision matrix. The word of God is holy. It is not trivial. It is not out of date. It does not contain suggestions should be our path and our guide for every decision. The next lesson, good intentions are fairy tales. Uh, Now, I imagine you are thinking what I was thinking when I read this story. It just doesn't seem fair because Yuza had the best, what? Intentions. How could God do this? Yuza was just, it's what we all would have done. He was, his intentions were good. He was trying to keep the ark safe. Good intentions, good intentions. Now listen, this this is a lesson, uh, don't tell anybody this, but this is a lesson I think I've only begun to learn in the last couple of years. I I wouldn't want somebody to think I was so hard-headed and stubborn two years ago, but... I think I'm beginning to learn the lesson. Good intentions are fairy tales. What's a fairy tale? A fairy tale is something that's not true, right? We want it to be true. We tell our kids, they imagine that they're true. They pretend that they're true. A fairy tale is something you pretend is true when you know it's not true. Good intentions are fairy tales. They're not real. They're not real. What do we even mean? What do we even mean when we say that we have done the wrong thing, but we have done it with good intentions? We've all said that. What do we mean when we say that? I tried to put it in other words, and every time I did, I was embarrassed by what I wrote. Maybe what we mean when we say I did the wrong thing, but I did it for good intentions, maybe we mean I know what I'm doing is wrong, but I am imagining that it's right. Or maybe we mean... 
while my mouth is saying things and my hands are doing things that are wrong, my heart is feeling things that are right. Now, those are ludicrous statements, right? But if that's not what we mean when we say, I did the wrong thing, but don't worry, I did it with good intentions. I don't know what we're saying. I think that is just foolish. I've said it before. I've thought it before. That's how I've justified some of the boneheaded things I've done in my life. But it's just a fairy tale. Did you know that there is no place in the Bible where God ever commends someone for good intentions? If you can find it, send it to me. I'd love to read it, but you're wrong, okay? There's no place in the Bible where God commends somebody for good intentions. Why is that? Because they're not real. There's no such a thing. That's just something you imagine in your head, in your heart. Obedience is always in the details. The details. Now imagine if there were a court hearing between God and Yuza. Now there wouldn't be because uh, there is no judge that can overrule God. But just for our purposes here. Uh, it goes to court in heaven and he says, I've been mistreated by God who struck me down and my legal defense is this. I had every intention to honor the Lord and honor the ark and that's exactly why I reached out and grabbed hold of it right before it fell to the ground. I had Every intention, the best of intentions. That would be his legal argument. And then it would be God's turn. And God would say, I gave Yuza very specific instructions for how to honor me. He rejected those instructions. So he did not intend to honor me. He didn't intend You can say you intend, but what you do, that's what you intend. Um, Good intentions are fairy tales. And I think good intentions often are the greatest enemy that we face. Good intentions keep people from living in a God-honoring way. Have you ever heard the expression, we judge others by their actions We judge ourselves by our intentions. It's not a Bible phrase, but I've heard people say it, and I think there's a lot of truth. When I'm thinking about somebody else's faithfulness to their their family, to their wife, to their kids, how good a husband they are or a dad they are, I think about how good, uh, how faithful they are to the church. And that's not a business we need to get into. But if I'm thinking about that, how do I measure that? I measure it by what they do. By what they do. I see a man mistreating his wife. I'm thinking, well, he's a bad husband. He's not honoring his kids, his parents. I think he's, he's, he's not, a good, not a good dad. He's not a good man, son. See, he doesn't come to church very often or he does this or that. He's not a very faithful person. So I, I measure other people by their actions. That's not how I measure me. I measure me by my intentions. I intended to do more. I have the best of intentions tomorrow to be better. I intend to honor my wife, to honor my parents, to honor my children. I intend, I intend, I intend. We judge others by their actions. We judge ourselves by our intentions. Now, why do we do that? Because I think deep down we know that intentions don't mean anything. 
That's why we judge other people by their actions. I don't care what your intentions are. I'm just interested in your actions. If a man were sitting uh, in, in, in the counseling office and he is mistreating his wife and he says, listen, I have every intention to treat her kindly and to honor her, uh, but, he's, but his actions are different, I would tell him, quit talking about your good intentions. That's just, a, that's just a label you have put on your lies and your imagination. Good intentions, good intentions. They keep us from serving God because we intend to serve God. We don't serve God. They, they, they keep us from giving faithfully. If, if everybody gave what they intended to give, oh, good night. We'd have to hire people to count the money, right? It keeps people from witnessing. Let me get to my last point. Yuza is Jesus, sort of. Now, this is my dangerous point. I talked to our seven o'clock prayer group about this this morning. I almost marked it out. But we said that we were, we were going to look for Jesus in every one of these stories. You know, the whole Bible is about Jesus. And you find him in these stories. So I finished, uh, really finished my sermon on this. And I finished my research on this sermon. And then I thought, well, where is Jesus here? Well, I'll tell you where I think Jesus is. Um, if, you, if you look at the full frame of the event, the Israelites had mishandled the ark in 1 Samuel 4. 30,000 people died. Now, they've mishandled the ark again uh, by transporting on a cart, by touching it. And, and, and I want you to see that Yuza's sin here was a secondary sin. It still was sin. Yuza did what was wrong. But the only reason Yuza steadied the ark was because they put it on the cart to start with. So one sin leads to another. So who's at fault? Who is at fault? Well, Yuza was at fault. But so were the other priests who accompanied the ark. They were at fault. David was at fault. He's in charge of the whole thing. The 30,000 soldiers, they're a part of this. The thousands who were celebrating the parade. The entire nation of Israel. So what did the Lord do? All of these people rebelling. The Lord poured out, the Lord directed his wrath at one man, Yuza. So how is Yuza like Jesus? Well, anytime we say that an Old Testament person is a picture of Jesus, we know it's always an imperfect picture, right? When we say Moses points to Jesus, well, imperfectly. When we say David is a model of Jesus, he is an imperfect model of Jesus. And certainly, Yuza is an imperfect model of Jesus. David is, Yuza uh, uh, is unlike Jesus because when Yuza died, he died for his own sins. Jesus never sinned. But here's the similarity. Tens of thousands of people sin. God directs his wrath toward one who represents them all. Jesus comes and God directs his wrath at one who is a substitute 
for them all. We already said the most surprising thing about the story of Uzzah and his death is that God didn't kill everybody. The most surprising thing today is that any of us are still here. But it's because Jesus took the wrath for us as our substitute. There's an odd verse in Isaiah, Old Testament prophecy. Isaiah 53.10 said, Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. Isn't that odd? The Lord, God, was pleased to crush Jesus, to kill Jesus. It goes on, when you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed, he will prolong his days, and by his hand the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. It pleased God to kill Jesus. Because Jesus stood as a substitute for us. There comes a day when we decide whether God's wrath for our sin will fall on us or to fall on the substitute, Jesus. Jesus said, I have died for the forgiveness of your sins. And if you will trust that as enough and you'll follow me, then your sins will be paid for. And you will be united with a holy God, a holy God. Just with your head bowed and eyes closed, Father in heaven, I pray that even in this service and the minutes that follow, that those who have never put their trust in what Jesus has done as he died for a subst- as a substitute for us all, that they'll do that today. Father, help us to be faithful people. Help us to be people who understand your holiness. Help us to be people who honor your word. Help us to be people, pardon me, to be people who don't have good intentions, but have faithful service and love. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.